It's a lot. 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 Like like. Everybody, welcome back to the Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, this week we get to hear from another legendary producer. It is Gareth Jones. So Gareth's career now Gareth has done a lot, but the two major artists that he is probably best known for are Depeche Mode and Erasure. I mean, it doesn't get bigger than that, especially in the synth world. So he works with Depeche Mode on a lot of those early '80s albums, like. Black Celebration, Some Great Reward, those formative albums that make Depeche Mode who they are. He's along with them. They're working out of the Hansa studio in Berlin, the one that Bowie made famous. So he's got stories about all of this. And then he goes and works with Erasure. In fact, he still works closely with Erasure. With Erasure. He produces Wild. He's on the, he works on the Cowboy album, the self-titled, uh, Light at the End of the World, tons of them. So he's got stories about how both of these artists come to be who they are, how they create the music they make, what's behind it all. I assume that those people were kind of seeking him out because they he's this synth guy, but I have that wrong. That's not necessarily how it works. So along the way, he also does a lot of work with Wire. There's newer acts too. There's Embrace. You know we love Embrace around here. He works on the first Interpol album, Grizzly Bear, just some of the fantastic bands. And at the very end of this conversation, he starts talking about solo material he put out that I didn't even know about. There's an album out there that's fairly new called Electrogenetic that is his. And uh, you got to check that out. I didn't know about any of these things before we start talking. And there's several other projects that he starts listing off. So it's very, very cool. I have to give a huge thanks to one of our listeners, John Meredith, for helping put me and Gareth in contact. Thank you, John, for doing that for us. Uh, you know the deal. He called me from his home in London. Okay. So first and foremost, Gareth, I, uh, as I said, you've worked on so many things that are huge for me. The big ones obviously are Depeche Mode and, and Erasure. There's a lot of other ones in there too, but, um, I can't, there it's your website has uh, very little information about you. So forgive me if I ask questions that are totally obvious to you because I don't know that much about you other than your name is on so many albums that matter to me. Was this one of those things, I'm curious, when you were growing up, did you intend to be a musician, a rock star, a guitarist somewhere, a 
keyboardist and then fall into production or how how did this work for you i love music and i played music as a as a, as a teenager but not in rock and roll bands i played in the school orchestra which was super fun and sung in the choir and shit but very much from a a, a traditional classical music kind of background i suppose mm. super amateurs obviously we were just a a local school orchestra but i i certainly had a love for uh, music and particularly for recorded music mm. uh, my father was big into his classical record collection so a lot of my exposure to early uh, great classical music was through my dad's record collection so somehow that you know recorded music has always been very important to me more important in my life than uh, live music actually although obviously it's wonderful to experience great live music, sure. but I've had so many uh, incredibly profound and uh, uh, inspiring and uh, growth enhancing, mm -hmm. uh, life enhancing uh, experiences listening to recorded music that really it's, it's kind of deep in my soul. Mm -hmm. So I was, uh, it was only really when I went to college that I, I, I was kind of on a, I, I don't know what, I don't know what my plans were really to, for, for a, a life. It was really when I got to college and, and expanded my horizons and got out of the family home, I suppose, that I realized I didn't want to be a lawyer or a doctor or a, uh, uh, a teacher or something, you know. Uh, and I met, met loads of new people, of course, and uh, heard loads of new music, continued my interest in recorded music. And, you know, I probably took my mono tape recorder to college as well, broadened my horizons generally and started to realize that I could do something alternative, mm. uh, you know, that I was very passionate about this thing. I, it was still very much a mystery to me. Mm. When I was a, 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 a young student, I'd never been in a recording studio or anything, but I was trying to, I was gradually unraveling the mystery by looking at record sleeves like so many people of my generation do, as thing, seeing, oh, this record was made there with this person and what's, you know, so this became more and more interesting uh, you know I, i'd had a like i said i had a, a real interest in, in in recorded music and in tape recording yeah when i was about 14 or 15 when i bought my first tape recorder my i suppose it was a conservative background i would say with a small c i mean my dad was a, a socialist but a, but but art was not something you did for a living, right? Making, sure. if, I, if, we, if I can presume to, it's pop art. A lot of what I've yep. done is pop art, let's say. Uh, so, you know, I, that was not what you did to make a living. That was, it was a hobby. Right. And that's how, but as I got into my early 20s, I thought, well, hang on a minute. Do, this doesn't have, it doesn't have to be like this. I didn't know how to get a job in a studio. I wrote to a lot of studios, every studio in the UK probably that I could find. And I didn't get a reply, of course, because I probably didn't realize you had to go and meet people and knock on doors and, you know, establish a, like a, 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 a genuine yeah. relationship. Right. I wrote a letter, you know, like a, like yeah. a little, like a student, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Here's my CV. I mean, that doesn't really work, you know. As yeah. a, and then uh, I was a bit lost, really. I thought, uh, I, 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 for some reason, so I got some odd jobs vaguely around the theatre and the, I, I had this idea I might need a union card, which I didn't need, it, obviously, because there is no real union for, there's a, clearly I've been a musician's union member for a long time, but there's no union really for engineers and producers. And so I, uh, for some reason, I've, I've, I still am a great uh, fan of uh, 
the radio, right? So um, we have a great public service broadcasting uh, still like, I mean, it's getting attacked by the government, but still functioning in this country. It does a lot of wonderful stuff. It's on every day in my house. I'm still a huge classical music fan. I listen to, uh, uh, so, so I had the idea, oh, maybe I can get some kind of training at the, at the BBC. So, and they were a little bit more receptive to letter writing and sending CVs mm. because it was a kind of a bit more of a formal organization. So I blagged the job at the BBC or blag. No, that's not true. I didn't read, but I met, I got a job at the BBC, got a basic training and worked there for a couple of years and enjoyed it and made a lot of progress, met some really talented people and worked out that it was going to be about 10 years before they were going to let me record a band. Mm. And that was a bit frustrating. So then I wrote to a bunch of studios again, and one guy uh, gave me a break, a guy called Mike Feinsilver, who's a musician himself. He owned a small eight-track analog, obviously in those days, late 70s, mm -hmm. one-inch eight-track studio, very small, bit scummy, very vibey, uh, cheap to rent for bands. Uh, so he gave me a break, uh, and I went to meet him, and uh, I started doing moonlighting. I started doing my, you know, I, was, I wasn't, confident enough to give up the radio job of course uh, but, but i started doing freelancing at this little yeah. studio then after i don't know if, i don't know how long it was man but after about six months or nine months i realized that i could they were offering there was more work to do in the eight track than i could take even mm. because of my other job so i i kind of went and presented my apologies to the bbc and said thanks very much but mm -hmm. you know i can't i i if i can if you can fast track me to make music i'll stay even yeah. at that stage um, yeah. Although you know, recording music for a radio station is very different from what I did in the in sure. the following decades, sure. obviously, because it's it's much more about capturing a live performance. And what I've made a career out of is multi-track, is using the studio exactly. as a musical instrument, you know, right. and multi-tracking. That studio That's, that you got a job with was that Pathway? Yeah, it was Pathway. That was my studio, okay. and it's now closed actually. But uh, I, I do I have a, a small production room at strong room studios in london at the moment quite often i cycle there and i cycle past the little street where pathway was so mm, it's kind really of, yeah it's quite a nice little about once or yeah. twice a week i cycle past there i go different routes yeah but i so it's quite a nice little uh, you know look back like a uh, what am i doing i'm taking stock it's yes. a little stock <laughs> yes. like, oh, yeah, yeah man that's where it started so a big big shout out to mike Finesilver. Not That's that he'll great. ever hear this, I'm sure, but, but you know, I, I really, you know, you, we all appreciate in our life so much when people give us a break. Totally it's agree. Totally great. agree. So I have, I'm curious about something because you become sort of an electronic music or a synth-based music pioneer. And a lot of that begins with John Fox's Metamatic album and specifically probably un Underpass, which is still, you know, a transformative piece of music.
was Pathway a place? I don't know enough about who records at which studios. I'm not an expert at that kind of thing. But does Pathway become a, a destination for electric-based uh, artists? Do those artists just go anywhere and they find that you have a knack for what they're trying to do? And so they start seeking you out? Are you no, interested well, in being a synth-based guy? What's How did this even happen? Well, I came at record production, I suppose, from a passionate interest in the technical side of it. Mm. A great love of music, but no, no real deep musical skills. And I tried to develop my technical skills so I could assist musicians making their music as, as, as best I could, which is one route, uh, you know, and, and in a sense, uh, and, and especially in those, uh, in, in those days, in the 70s and 80s, the the musicians didn't really play the studio like they do now. All musicians can use the studio now because of Logic and Ableton and Pro Tools. And it's a thing that it's part of the musical tradition to be able to multi. But in that, in that time, it needed someone to play the studio. John, but but I was not sought out by John at all. I was, I was nobody. I, I, I was working hard and learning fast from all my musician colleagues. Um, but... John came to that studio because he had a clever idea. He, as a as a fine artist, he wanted to make a minimal record. He'd made three records with Ultravox. He wanted to make a minimal electronic record. So, he, I mean, it's not for me to second guess him, but clearly he thought about that and he thought, okay, making a minimal record, I'll use minimal tools. So he turned up with one drum machine, one string synth and one synth, an ARP Odyssey, one monophonic synth and a flanger. And then he thought he really he'd worked in big studios and he didn't want to spend a lot of money, but and he wanted to make a minimal record. So he thought, I'll go to a small studio where I'm track limited, where yeah. I don't have I don't have many tracks. It, it, to, in, in hindsight, in 40 years later, it's brilliant uh, conceptual thinking from from an artist, uh, which I didn't appreciate at the time. I was just delighted to him. He came in and, uh, you know, hey, here's here was someone working with. I've been one of my friends had a wasp. And we'd mucked around with the, the Wasp synth that was almost the first affordable synth. I've been a huge fan of Walter Carlos, as she was then, uh, in the 60s. And that had blown my mind, you know, um, hearing uh, Joe Meek's work on Telstar uh, that sounded otherworldly. John wanted to make a completely electronic record, and I was on board straight away because... Uh, not that hey i was hired anyway no i was not going to say sure. no anyway but i mean i was i was uh, of course i was committed i was a junior right. engineer right here's a gig but yes. also also in my heart I, I was i thought this is cool I, i'm interested in this to me this seemed like something worth pursuing building on some of these early early building blocks that had, that had been so exciting in my teenage years so yeah, so and, and this studio was round the corner from where John lived, and it was cheap and it was small, and okay. all that fitted. And that's how we met. Okay. So, and yeah. is that how other other electronic bass bands like Depeche Mode? And you're gonna have to. I never know how to say that German band's name. How do you say their name? Einstein. Well, Neubauten. Yeah, they are very much. Uh, uh, you know, uh, creative, uh, forward-thinking artists.
they were not really using electronics when I met them. Mm. We did. I did introduce a sampler into the production. Take on, I brought it to the production table because I had samplers, you know. So we did right. use some samplers, but that came later. I learned a great deal from John. He was a great mentor for me without me realizing it at the time. I didn't even know what a mentor was. Mm -hmm. But seeing it, he was seemed massively experienced to me. Metamatic was his fourth album, and four albums he'd made. I'd made no albums at that <laughs> point, top to bottom, you know. Right. So that was like night and day, man. Right. You know? right. So, so. He did well. He didn't spend too much money making Metamatic because he was clever. Because he, he didn't, he'd seen it. He'd seen bands get huge advances and run into debt with record companies right. and never get ahead of their debt. He didn't want right. to do that. He, he was doing a fresh start and he thought, okay, part of his minimal approach was to work in a cheap studio. Yeah. So somehow he came away with plenty of money to build his own studio which was the garden studio yeah that's a great album too what foresight from that guy no one i can imagine is thinking quite like that at that yeah, time was, they don't he, know he, what it, the impact of big budgets and all that kind of stuff is just yet no i guess it's because he's done his he's left ultravox he's done his three albums with ultravox he's worked with connie plank he's worked a little bit with brian eno he's and he's he's seen and he's he's a what we call canny he's a northern he's a bit careful with money he's th he's thinking hang on a minute what's going on here yes they give us oh i don't know what the equivalent is 500 grand to make a record but you know if that actually is our money right when they fly in and give buy a champagne we're buying he'd worked it out you know and so so he so through this real clever route of making this super minimal cheap record with me then he bought us he decided to build his own studio which was the garden studio okay, i was okay. kind of his i'd become his engineer uh, at that time uh, um working for him freelance whenever he needed some help and i consulted for my sins not that i knew anything about it really but i consulted on the technical side john had a vision for the studio which was to not do sunset sound in other words i mean i love the i love the vintage studios now in los angeles and all over the world and so we all do but at the time it felt important to move away from this guitar oriented studio with stones and carpets on the walls right. it, it, this was clean modern minimalism we were going yeah. for this is a different yeah. vibe you know yeah. so he had a very clear artistic vision of what the studio should feel like and we had many conversations and he had a budget and we had many conversations about gear so i kind of consulted on the gear right. in fact right. my first trip to the states was to buy a lexicon for that studio really yeah i went i said to john look if i go to la and buy a lexicon and bring it back it'll still work out cheaper for you even if <laughs> way cheaper even if you pay for my ticket so he was like all right go for it <laughs> that's great he really he was big into rooms and reverbs that is great okay okay so let's move on to depeche mode then because you come along those first two albums of theirs are cute but they're to me a little juvenile and it's around the time of construction time again where their sound gets more fuller more mature i personally yes and i personally believe that some great reward I know uh, not everyone agrees with this, but that to me is their most important album because that was the one where their the new version of Depeche Mode that vision became wholly realized 
or as much as realized as it was going to be at that point. Yeah. And they were great from that point on, if you ask me. What was it like working with Depeche Mode, who at that time, and I've, I've watched uh, documentaries on this, it's all about, it seems to be sampling different noises, like just, you know, change falling on a metal floor or something like that, and turning that into music. And yeah. are you the one kind of sitting next to them with the samplers, finding ways to make music out of these things? Well, we're all, we're all doing it, aren't we? Because, um, uh, you know, every, uh, we've all got different samplers. Uh, it's new technology. It's mind-blowing. Uh, my uh, interest in samplers was always to uh, uh, not to recreate the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, right. but to, to take the world and play beats and melodies from it. Uh, so, so, and that's something that I, I still feel is 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 my most is is the most joy that I get from sampling. I, I get that TV composers need an orchestra at their disposal and so on, but uh, but to, that's to, to me that's just copying something that already exists. And that the 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 transcendental, mind blowing quality of the sampler when it arrived when it was invented was that actually look we could take all these different sounds and once you start doing that it's a very productive field once you walk into that field it's very fruitful because yeah. the world's full of sound and melody you know in fact i've just done a new record with my friend chris bono uh now i have a, a solo a project called now alpha which is a duo it's called a walk in the woods and the the album was based on taking uh, recorders to the woods for the first day and rec playing on with logs and stones in the woods really so, so uh, even now, 40, 35 years later, whatever it is, yeah. we're still, still using samplers as a core compositional tool. Fascinating. We, we couldn't take, obviously at that time, sampling length was a lot shorter. So fragments of rhythm were smaller, but we could still do things, as you say, like drop coins on a floor or the saucepan down, rolling down the stairs, or we could yeah. still capture interesting rhythms from the world, you know. Yeah. So yeah, I had a sampler. Daniel bought a massive sampler. Martin Gore had a sampler. You know, hey, you know, anyone with money who was interested in electro pop and electronic music moving forward, everyone yeah. had samplers. You know. Okay. Was um, that process painstaking or was it exciting? Because there's a part of me that sees that kind of. What about this noise? What about that? And I start thinking, oh man, it 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 could never end. You could just keep tinkering and you know forever and ever or are you seeing guys like this is so exciting and these guys have a vision they know what they're doing it's uh we're all on a roll and and it's very fruitful the field like i say it's so so you find a delicious uh, sample you just use it you know it's not like you can you, you can't explore the whole field but you can take stuff and say well that sounds amazing let's use that and of course it's all it's uh, for us, it's all new, and yeah. it's relatively new for the world because it's it's new technology that's just arrived, so it's not really been done. Right. So any sampling, anything, you know, sampling, tapping a a, a glass with a with a spoon is amazing. Right. Because then you, oh no, I can play a melody on it. You know, right. you know, I mean, it's like a miracle. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, I mean, it felt very, it felt like we were very committed and hard working, but when I look back, it was. It, uh, you know, we didn't spend that long on the records, okay. actually. Okay. You know, I mean, okay. the longest one we spent, I think, was Black Celebration. It was like three months. Okay. Which, is, which felt like an amazing amount of time at the time. Yeah. But now yeah. in the context of people gradually making records over a year or 18 months, it sure. seems like 
you know, so. Let me uh, let me throw out a couple of songs from that period, from their whole, you know, the whole, all the stuff you did that I'm curious about. Stripped is my personal favorite Depeche Mode song of all. I was wondering if there's a story there. Do you have, and if it, if there's nothing for stripped, are there songs or moments that leap to mind from that era where you're like, oh, you would not believe what in what went into making Master and Servant or whatever, you know? Stripped was uh, special. One of the things I remember about Stripped is the marketing effort. Actually, we had a, a radio was extremely important in that in that time. Extremely important and. Uh, we had a very effective plugger, we call him, a, 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 a PR person for radio and TV. And we, he'd never been into the studio when we were working before. And it was such a crucial moment in the band's career that, that uh, I mean, I guess uh, uh, the record company, Daniel, who was co-producer, that my friend Daniel Miller, decided to invite Neil down into the studio to play him the track in an unfinished form which we'd never done. We never played anything to anyone that was unfinished, you know, anyone in the industry, you know. So that was a big thing. We brought him in and turned the lights down and turned up the speakers. It, we were still in London. We hadn't got to the Berlin phase yet mm. of that for that track. Uh, so it was not finished by any means, but sounded really vibey. Obviously, you know, there's radical things about it in terms of developing the, their production work, the big drone, you know yeah. the the engine that the rhythm the yeah. basic rhythm given by the engine this shit the start the way the engine starts at the beginning this shit is groundbreaking for us it's something we've yeah. not done before which is i think part of the the joy of working in experimental electro pop as as we felt we as i felt we were making then we all felt we were making we were trying to make shit that we'd never heard before we weren't referencing uh, other we were hugely inspired by Noi or Kraftwerk or Penderecki. It could be anyone, but mm -hmm. but we weren't we weren't working to any kind of formula. Yes. We were taking the wonderful songs and we were trying to make them awesome in our own way. And of course, we were all quite young. We were all in our twenties, I think. Daniel was at the end of his twenties, and the band was at the beginning of their twenties, roughly. Mm -hmm. So that's part of the awesomeness about Stripped. You know, I've said, talked talk many times about, everyone's talked many times about recording the fireworks in the mm -hmm. car park. That was a new thing as well. Mm -hmm. Just running out, taking out super high quality mics on long lines right down the car park to record these fireworks that we set That's off. Right. 
you know, so this is right. all, uh, it's fun to, it's, hey, it'd be fun to do now, but it's yeah. super fun when you're young and the first of time course. you do it. So, so we're not trying millions of options. We're getting, we got 10 fireworks, we're shooting mm -hmm. them off and something is working. You know what I mean? So, right. so it's, we, we consider ourselves to be painstaking, but we're not getting stuck in the details. We're yeah. constantly moving forward. Anyway. Yeah. Go on. I love that. Uh, yeah. What, I mean, you're seeing a, a, a band realize their potential in that three album span that you're on them with. What are, so, is there another song, another, the process of making a song that we might know? Curious if there's a song that sticks out in your mind as like, as, super experimental or super creative or hype you know hyper interesting well conceptually uh, pipeline from the first album That is made, every every sound on it is uh, made in the field. They're all field recordings. That was a conceptually very strong idea. And, and uh, I had a, I still have a, a wonderful portable Swiss tape machine called a Stellavox SP7 that we took out into the junkyards and recorded loads of sounds and brought them back to the studio and recreated the riffs made some new riffs obviously and and played some riffs that martin already composed for the song uh so and, and i mean this story has been told a lot but that was very important to me because uh, the, somehow there's a purity about it uh there's no added reverb on any of the sounds all the, everything was recorded with two mics because it was a two-track recorder a close mic and a distant mic and and then mixed in the studio to give reverberation and a sense of space to all the different parts. So uh, and it was mixed without EQ or because uh, when we came to mix it, I, I said I said why don't, look this just sounds awesome. Why don't we just mix it with the levels only without using EQ? And it kind of followed through conceptually from this natural sound idea. I mean, it seems absurd because it's yeah. all built with samplers and it's electro pop. But um, we're kind of, we're kind of chasing a natural sound idea there, and I felt that worked really well. And of course, some of the vocals were done also in the field. We went back into the field to record some vocals. This was, um, yeah, conceptually very pure and and very beautiful sonically. I think so. Yeah, I love it. Uh, so we have some um, Patreon supporters, and uh, a couple of them sent over some questions yeah. for you specifically. One of them, Greg Chittister, had a question that I was curious about too. When you you leave for the uh, Music for the Masses, Violator, Songs of Faith and Devotion period, but you come back for Ultra. 
Uh, and at bat, at that point, uh, Alan Wilder was no longer in the band. Yeah. And he, our, the understanding of fans is that he had always been a little bit of a workhorse. So Greg's question was, were they easier or different to deal with at that point at, with Alan no longer being in the picture? I played a very minor role in Ultra. Um, I was, uh, it was produced by Tim Simonon and I was uh, drafted in at the last minute to help with a bit of what we call parallel working. A lot of people do it, uh, especially if you've got budget. Someone's mixing in one room, someone's finishing off the fine, finessing the beat in another room, someone's recording vocals in another room because the deadline is pushing and the band have got to get on tour, whatever, you know. So it was that kind of scenario. And I, I did a little bit of mixing and tracked uh, some vocals. The band were now what's happening at this stage is they've been through a drama. Dave's clean. So there's a positive spirit in the in, in around that. Flood carried the can for the very difficult albums, Songs of Faith and Devotion, where where yeah. you know, where Dave's out there, where Dave's basically dying. But my experience uh, with working on Ultra and on Exciter after that, it's always been a, a joyous, a joyous and creative experience. By the time I come back on Ultra, you know, Dave, a non-drug-taking uh, addict, you know, yeah. Yeah. he's a recovering addict, man. Yeah. And, he, and with all, and as an artist, with all the positive energy that brings to so many recovering addicts mm -hmm. who don't die, thank God. Yeah. You know, so so that that was great to be around and great to help and be a part of. Uh, Tim Simonon was drafted in, uh, invited in as producer. He also worked with a very powerful team with a musician and a great engineer. So I think one of the reasons why Tim was such a good fit for that record was because he came with a team who helped to replace Al, mm. Mm. which is quite widely understood. You know, Al was a great uh, studio head. Mm -hmm. And and I know that uh, Martin and uh, and cer certainly and, and Dave as well now are much, much more interested in the studio than they were. Yeah. yeah. I can in, see in that. Their early days, you know, deep, Martin's deeply interested in the studio. Yeah. Um, but uh, at that time, when I worked with them in the Berlin trilogy, Al was the studio head. So mm. him him departing obviously yeah. leaves a, a, a hole, a gap. And sure. I think Tim's team helped fill that gap. Okay. Uh, so, you know. What's it like working at that Hansa studio in Berlin? I mean, that's Bowie made it famous with his Berlin trilogy. Um, yeah. I'm guessing there are a lot of artists 
who love Bowie, like so many of us do, that want a piece of that inspiration on their music. And I can yeah. see Depeche Mode being one of those bands. Maybe they were, yeah. Uh, I, I discovered Hansa through a different route, actually. I introduced them to Hansa. Oh. Um, we, we loved, uh, obviously, we all loved the, the, the Berlin trilogy from, from David Bowie. But I was already working at Hansa uh, for a German new wave band who, uh, and starting very close to moving to Berlin as well. I think I'm, I, because I fell in love with the studio big time. And uh, Daniel was working, visiting, Flood was tracking with uh, Nick Cave and the birthday party uh, downstairs in Studio Two, and they were on mute, and Daniel was visiting that session. I was mixing another project upstairs in the one of the mix suites, and I, I obviously we met up, uh, and I said, look, man, what about mixing Depeche here? And uh, it, it, everything clicked. It all fit. Really? where everyone loved the vibe, the yeah. price was right, the technology was amazing, the band, it was incredible for them to come to Berlin, it was a huge step for all of us, a great adventure together. Perfect. So it's not like we t we sought out Hansa mm -hmm. uh, to, in order to to follow, to get some of that wonderful vibe, which yeah. would be fine, If uh, but I, I was actually pushed into, uh, you know, this has happened, I, I will only use this, this has happened a number of times in my life, I didn't want to mix in Hansa, Mm. Uh, for this project, the reason I was there, mm. the manager. I wanted. I was a young producer engineer. I was working with this band called Ideal. I wanted to mix it in London, where I felt safe. The manager. It was more convenient for the manager if I mixed it in Berlin. The band all lived in Berlin. Mm -hmm. He They were up for that. He said, "If you want to go to London, that's fine. But mm -hmm. come and have a look at this studio. See what you think." And I was like, "All right, if you want, if you insist, I'll go and have a look." And then I thought, "Oh, hang on, Hansa Studio." Uh, and then he showed me, he just took me in to show me the mix room. And I, I walked in and I said, yes, we'll, I'll do it here. Like straight really? away. Oh. It was a massive, great big solid state logic console, which was, I'd never worked on. It's every young producer's dream, even to this day. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly that time then it was a huge thing. I just wanted to highlight that as an example of, you know, not always being stuck in your own little prejudice. Yeah. Because there yeah. I was stuck in my little prejudice. You know, yep. I, I wouldn't have done it. But for the fact, but anyway, so yep. that's, so it worked well for everyone. And of course, we all loved the vibe once, once we started working in Berlin. I didn't realize that. I would have imagined Depeche Mode seeking that place out for the reasons no, I no, I found that it. It, Everything you're saying makes total sense. And you're so right. I've been thinking about that a lot lately. How much growth can be found in all of us individually when we step outside what we know and where we're comfortable with. Yeah. And um, you just never know. You know, you never know what kind of brilliance is hiding over there lurking for you to be, find it, you know, and they found and it. They, enough, we, just, we just got to take notice, right? Because it's yes. on offer. Yes. This was on offer. Yeah. That's right. That's I right. said, no, no, I'm going to London. You know, yeah. it was only because I was a bit new. I wasn't that confident. Now I would. I don't care where I'm. Yeah. Well, I don't care. I'm. I'm flexible. I work in right. all kinds of places. It's great. Right. You know? But but yeah. there at that time I was insecure. Yeah. My insecurity almost blew it for me there. But that's amazing. I did so much great work in that place. You know. You did. You did. Uh, okay, let's switch over to Erasure. So they come around at near the in the. In the late 80s, uh, with the specific, I believe it kicks off with the Wild album, which is so yeah. great.
I have this narrative in my head before talking to you that electronic artists are coming to you because you do something with John Fox, Depeche Mode likes it, they come seek you out, Erasure likes what you're doing with Depeche, they want a piece of that, they come seek you out, that a sort of momentum is building here as you being the guy who makes brings out the best in electronic artists. Maybe I'm wrong, but is that something of why Erasure may have sought you out? No. Uh, ah, see, I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I have this we, all wrong. <laughs> we were quite. I mean, now uh, uh, vocal production's a thing, right? It's a thing now. It's all over. It's it's it's. Uh, at that time, it wasn't so much a thing. Erasure had got to a stage in their career they wanted to spend, or specifically, I think. But I, no, both of them wanted not to be in this situation where you spend five days making the track and the vocal and the backing vocals get done in the last evening because that's all the time there is left. So they were thinking, they thought, what does this mean exactly? Maybe it means we need to get some kind of dedicated vocal producer. And I was um, recommended to them by a, a, a dear friend of mine, a, a, a wonderful alternative artist called Diamanda Gallas, who's an incredible musician uh, and singer, a great diva. And I'd made a two or three, two, two records with her already. She was friends with Andy Bell the singer from Erasure. And she'd recommended me as being someone who was sympathetic about getting great vocal performance. And so obviously the record company knew me anyway, because it's the same record company. And so I got introduced to Andy and Vince as a vocal producer for Wild. And then it turned into, uh, and there was another guy, Mark Saunders, who co-produced Wild. So Mark Saunders was hired as the music producer with Vince. Now Vince was working in a different studio. I think they were working in Conk and we were working in the church, which is now Paul Epworth's studio. At that time it was uh, uh, Eurythmics, Dave and Annie's studio. So I'm very much focused on, uh, on, on vocals 
Uh, in fact, that's my brief, the vocals. Uh, sometimes we'd feed back something about the music, obviously, as they would feed back about the vocals from there. But really, we're in two camps till it comes to mixing. And when it came to mixing that record, we're in a kind of sound system fight, bake off, like a fight, like a fight, like a contest. Uh, <laughs> So uh, Mark's mixing and we're mi I'm mixing, Mark's mixing a bit with Vince and I'm mixing with Andy and uh, we're trying to raise our game, both yeah. of us, you know, they'll do a mix. We think that's good. Some mixes Mark and Vince did, we were like, but I'm done. Yeah. Uh, and some mixes we were like, no, we could, we'll do it. And then we did one and then they did one. So it was this kind of uh, like a sound system battle, really. Yeah. Uh, that, uh, mixing. But that's no, great. I came in and obviously I've made... I've worked, I got to know Vince through this record and I've worked with them. Obviously they're great artists and songwriters and dear friends over many decades. And I've done lots of different work with Erasures, yeah. sometimes much more with the electronics as well. Uh, okay. But the, yeah. start, but the starting point was very much about uh, giving Andy the space and the opportunity to work with a vocal producer to expand his vision. And okay. Mm -hmm. I have some questions about a few of these albums, specifically the self-titled album from the, what was that, around 94, 95? Yeah, that maybe. is, to me, their most experimental. Yeah. If you could say one thing about Erasure, they are consistent. They do these four-minute, bright, fun pop songs like no one else, to yeah. the point where you could almost diminish the genius that it takes to create those kinds of songs, I yeah. think, anyway. That's, that's part of Vince Clark's genius. But on the Erasure album, the songs are expanding into like seven, eight, ten minutes long. There's a lot of synthy, electronic soundscapes going on it's just for them it is a completely out of nowhere album do you remember working on that and did vince and andy come to you and say we have a completely different idea we're going to try and go do something completely different for this one there was an idea from the beginning to make it different and they've had other concepts as well actually but but this one was particularly resonant because it changed the sound of the record so much it's almost like uh, we're going to make a concept album Right. It's almost like that. I, yeah. I don't know if that was said at the beginning, but it was clear the pieces were going to be more extended. We weren't going to be so focused on banging pop. I co-produced that record with Thomas Failman, 
who's a, a great uh, Berlin electronic musician and producer and friend of mine from many years. And from the beginning, it was clear. I mean, I'm not one of these people who says we could hear it all in our heads at the beginning. Sure. Sure. I don't, that's never like that for me. But we had this idea that it was going to be extended long form pieces, really sounding beautiful uh, and immersive, but not banging pop. I mean, that's one of the reasons why the record didn't do as well as all their other records. Yeah. But what a beautiful record, man. Yeah, that, it is. Amazing, amazing. And I, in, I invited uh, Diamanda Galas sings on that record, the woman who introduced me to Andy in the first place. Mm. Uh, and, and it was that, that level of seriousness that we had about it that she would even join us. Mm-hmm. Because it, had it been a normal Erasure pop record, there's no way yeah. we, would, we would have joined us on it. Yeah. You know? So, yeah. so yeah, somehow at the beginning there was a, an idea to to make it what it became. I love them, and um, and one thing that's kind of unique about you too is that you've you've been with them. You work up with them in the on the drama in the late '80s, but then you're still working with them periodically up through the bulk of the 2000s. Um, one of my favorite Latter Day albums of theirs is "Light at the End of the World," and um, specifically, I love the song. Um, storm in a teacup I, st- I still work with andy and vince we're currently working on a uh a after i didn't work on the neon the last album mm-hmm. but we're working on a, a little something at the moment so oh good fun okay great and then um also the the song off of cowboy in my arms which was a decent sized hit for them Do you remember anything about that song? A lot of this, uh, I remember, and we've changed actually since then. When, uh, when Andy and I work very efficiently now and very creatively, and but in this period, I remember very long extended vocal sessions, really? just just endless takes, things that we wouldn't do now. We uh, maybe. A lot of producers uh, and artists go through this phase where they feel they need to keep pushing. Now, when I'm much more of a, my approach is to have the right mood, get in there, do do some great takes, and step back. But but in order to get to this point where I know that that's the best that I can do to help people, I, I went through a phase with Andy uh, as well where we did where it was torturous. I would say actually. So, you know, really, we're t- almost torturing ourselves. I believe it, it. it. It's only in retrospect, it feels like that. At the time, it felt like we were questing mm-hmm. and doing the right thing. You know, 
it wasn't masochistic in that sense. But looking back, I just think, man, what were we on? What were we doing? <laughs> Why? Why? Because, you know, the, the guy's a great singer. You know, yeah, he is. He's still. Singing. Still. He's, he's, yeah. got, he's got a great soul, a great heart. He's a wonderful gift, and, and he's developed it his whole life. You know, he really needs to step in, mm -hmm. step up, and, and deliver. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, that's the art, I think, of working with many great it. artists. I love you know. it. I'm curious, again, going back to what I was saying about having worked with them off and on for 25 years, well, still 30-something years. Has the dynamic in their relationship changed over the years? Have they, um, and I don't mean this as a criticism, if it sounds like one, I don't mean for it to, but so many duos begin as a team that are un equally united, Hall & Oates, Simon & Garfunkel, whoever, to... Uh, achieving something. And then when success comes, then it's the separate limos. It's the separate, you know, hotel rooms. It's uh, recording vocals over uh, at their house and emailing them over and, and no actual personal interaction. You know what I'm saying? And yeah. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying that's a function of success for duos that are so united when they're young. And I'm curious if Vince and Andy do, are they still friendly? Do they still do things together as a united front or do well, they kind of piecemeal? They very much have a united front. Yeah. Obviously uh, Vince lives in Brooklyn and Andy lives in Florida and London. So, uh, so they're not, uh, you know, they're not uh, in the bar together um, uh, on Friday night, kind of, obviously, but the, the depth of their friendship and their mutual respect is indicated by the fact they still uh, work together mm -hmm. and tour together, yeah. even though they're by no means at their height of their commercial uh, success. Uh, you know, so right. I think a, a lesser a bond would have been broken True. because the, no, they, they don't work together for the money. You know, yeah. they work together because that's what they do. They have an artistic resonance yeah. and, a, and and their loyalty to each other yeah. that has that has kept them. Uh, you know, as as a united front. I don't think I never saw it. I don't think they went through the separate limo phase. Really? <laughs> no, I think they were all very grounded. I, there okay. was, I'm sure they. I'm sure they had their frictions, man. Sure. You know, of course. Uh, uh, but nothing like that. That's they've great. Always, they've always seemed to me as very grounded, down to earth people, uh, and they yeah. seem to have. St there's a massive mutual respect from both sides. They love each other dearly. Good. Good. Oh, that's comforting to hear. As a yeah. fan, you want to believe that your favorite artists feel that way toward one another. And uh, yeah. so it's good to hear that because I love those guys. Yeah, and, I, I mean, it, and the proof is in the fact they're still doing it. You know? Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. I've seen them live a few times. And the first time was in San Francisco in the early 2000s. They were promoting the Other People's Songs album. Yeah. And um, it was, <laughs> I'd never seen them live before. And I went with my brother in law. So obviously a couple of straight guys in San Francisco at the Bill Graham Civic Auditorium. We are the only straight guys in the room. And yeah, as the concert's good. going on, Andy is taking off more and more clothes until the end. And he looks fantastic. He's in a little leather brown Speedo, basically. And the yeah. crowd is going crazy, you know? And, it's, and it was really eye-opening experience to me because you just... Every guy there uh, looked like, every, you know, you think you are going to see a certain type of gay man and you don't. You see all kinds of gay men at their, at their concert. And yeah, uh, anyway. San Francisco, I would love to see. I've never seen him in San Francisco. That must yeah, be it was great. It was such a fun show. I'll never forget it. And my brother-in-law and I are just kind of looking at each other like, we're the only two straight guys here. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. <laughs> 
No, he's such a great showman as well. Yes, he is. Not only great, but I mean, just great. It really yeah. comes to life on stage. And that yeah. persona, that, 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 you know, he's such a humble, sweet yeah. guy off stage, mm -hmm. uh, self-effacing almost. To, right. you know, and then right. on stage, whoa, he can let it's, it rip. He, he lets it go. It's great. Yeah, yeah. He probably knew he was in a very comfortable, welcoming, loving audience at that he show. Knew too, that. Well. He knew, yeah. yeah, I'm sure he did. Yeah. Um, okay, let's talk about Wire for a minute. You come on for those two albums, Ideal Copy, Bella's a Cup. This is a time when they have gone from, you know, they were the, those first three albums come out that are hugely experimental, taking punk and post-punk in all these different directions. And then they start incorporating uh, some electronic music. I mean, there's a, there's actual like songs and harmonies there. They're still done in their very odd way, like Kidney Bingo and stuff. But you're there helping them with this vision. What What is it like working with Wire, who are so massively creative, but all over the place? Their lyrics are in, are nonsensical. It's all about feel. It feel. It seems like that was a, a great experience and very very challenging for many of us. Actually, one of the I think ideal copy we made the stupid decision to work through the Christmas vacation. Oh. Christmas is a big vacation in the in Europe. And for some reason, we were all in Berlin and we had the studio booked and we thought, right, first and last time I think any of us will ever do that. We got almost no work done for a week because everyone was either drunk or depressed. <laughs> so that was, and that was, that was very, yeah, why it was a kind of a reunion, not that they ever officially split up, but it started with an EP that we did series of uh, uh, snake drill. The EP, we did an EP first with uh, Daniel co-producing and that's how it started uh, their kind of comeback With you, 
They were being like super creative artists. They wanted to do things new, I think. Mm -hmm. um, you know, with, in, with retrospect and experience and vision, I would have held them a bit tighter to their original sound, I think, mm -hmm. because, because I, I, in many ways we went down kind of, it was a wonderful experimental journey, but it was a kind of a blind alley for Wire. Mm -hmm. And I was part of that, uh, that uh, hike or that, that voyage. I was very excited by it. But I, in, in retrospect, I would, as I said, I would love to have held on to a bit more of their core sound mm -hmm. while still bringing in MIDI and some sampling and some different approaches to some things, perhaps. But not that I, not that, hey, wow, don't do what you tell them to do. It's not that right. I wasn't in charge. I right. was just there. We right. were all there together experimenting, you know. Yeah. There's yeah. no sense of me being in charge. No one was in charge. It's wire for fuck's sake. Yeah. You know, they're all very, very creative uh, yeah. personalities you know robert didn't like playing to the click you know that oh. was a that, that was a bit you know now now if i recorded wire i would never have them play to the play to a click you know why would you do that <laughs> <laughs> and anyway robert's probably changed since then but you know there was all these things sure where we were taking post-punk art band and trying to use new technology to make something new and we did Lots of those albums I st I love still. Ideal Copy, that's abrasive, though. That is hard to listen to. Yes. I find a lot of Wire's music easier to admire than it is to enjoy, if that makes I, sense. Yeah, I get that. I liked it when I, I went to see them play in the ICA in London later, when they kind of rediscovered their, uh, rediscovered their original sound, and I was so pleased, and it was so awesome. Yeah, but I was, yeah. I was like, whoa, that's great. So I always felt that the, the work I did with them in the middle there yeah. was they was kind of blind alleys. But nevertheless, great guys, Graham yeah. and Bruce and Colin and Rob, you know, all amazing guys. It was amazing to be with them and be part of their art, be on an artistic yeah. journey together. Sure. To, uh, to have shared uh, shared so much experimenting. And, 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 you know, very, very funny guys as well. Really? Oh, good. Bruce and Graham are so funny, man. <laughs> especially, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if they're, especially when we were in a bar. God, they were, they were so dry. So dry, but so funny. Oh, good. Because you could just imagine. Really? Because you could just imagine guys as, I don't know, experimental as them just constantly being in their heads. But it sounds like they're fun guys to hang out with. Yeah, they were. Yeah, they were. Good. Yeah, it was a, a great learning okay. curve. Good. All right. I want to ask you about a couple of uh, more recent albums that I believe you worked on. One of them is Interpol, uh, Turn on the Bright Lights. Yeah.
that is one of the greatest debut albums in history, if you ask me. I love that album. What did you do with them? Why did you do it? Did they seek you out? How did this partnership happen? Uh, they recorded it with the Nationals producer. Your Caddis? Peter Caddis, thank you. Okay. So Interpol, no, they haven't got a deal, right? They've, uh, they have got some songs. They have gone to Peter Caddis's studio uh, in upstate New York, maybe somewhere, to track. And Peter Caddis is a genius. A great musician, great producer, obviously, as he's demonstrated many times since that record. So, but for some reason, the, 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 all of them, Peter included, have got the idea they need to get an outside person in to mix it or to help, mi to help mix it. And Daniel Kessler worked for Domino Records in, in New York. In Domino, Re Domino Records New York was out of Daniel Kessler's flat at that time, uh, somehow. I don't really know the details, but it was a very, but so, and I knew Lawrence because I'd made, uh, done some work for Domino with Clinic. Uh, I did an amazing debut record. And so Lawrence thought I might be a good fit. So Lawrence put me in touch with the band. I don't think there was a manager or anything at that time. And I heard something, demos, rough mixes. I don't know what I heard or something. I thought it was awesome. So I took the, economy fly offer with almost no money with the greatest of pleasure to go and help out you know uh, i like exploring and adventuring you know it was people i didn't know and it was amazing it was uh, so i rocked up at pete peter had a, lived in a massive house out in the country somewhere and the top floor was this amazing studio and everyone kind of uh, he he'd set it up as a real artist residence where all, all downstairs was all different bedrooms where people crashed basically and we went to the we went to the supermarkets to to buy food and everyone cooked it was mm -hmm. it was very much diy thing but we had a, but a great facility so i got stuck in and 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 helped them mix it and some of them some of my mixes made it to the record there was oh. very it was very, it was very short time i think i was there about 7 or 8 days because oh, okay. there was there was no budget and stupidly that's what we said we'd do I think looking back, I should have said, well, look, don't worry. I'll, let's just, maybe that's all Peter had time for. And I don't know what it was. For some reason, we time limited it. Okay. I would now, I would say, well, hang on. This might take two or three weeks. Let's just chill and go with yeah. it. So I was very keen. They tracked everything on tape. I was very keen to mix it off tape uh, because I love tape. And Peter at that stage, I think, was moving stuff into his Pro Tools rig, a very right. small early Pro Tools rig to mix because of the power and control he could get from that. But uh, so uh, so we just got stuck in with the mixing, and um, that was great. I mean, the recordings were fantastic. Yeah. Anyway, the, the, one of the big things I remember about that was the fantastic songs and the atmosphere, but also the sense of nervousness. That there was a sense in the band that if this didn't work, they were going to do. They were going to give it give it up. Yeah. Go back to the really unthinkably really yeah yeah uh, you know, the, the, because because they went on to be so huge and so so important yeah such a great band you know yeah but i'm just sharing that for people in doubt don't give up really <laughs> i love that they really were that. close to you could tell i had one or two heart to hearts on the porch with with the guys you know really they were, i can't do this much longer you know it's like <laughs> there's no money i was like man just wait till the record's finished yeah. it's an awesome record yeah it really is. I um, and I don't know that they've ever been this good. That's my personal opinion. Their debut album is the perfect one. I've seen I them live a couple. 
it is yeah. for me to it, it's yeah. i mean i can and i'm not and that's not because i worked on it either i'm not i would be i'm i'm a great fan of violator and songs of faith and devotion for instance huge fan you know but there's something about that debut album it's mag yeah. i think it's raw it's still very raw you see yeah and 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 it's it's really really they really want it I agree. And I don't, I, none of their other al albums are as perfect a collection of songs as that one is. I saw, I've seen them in concert twice. Once was at the Fillmore in San Francisco on this debut album. And then I saw them about a year or two ago uh, here in Denver opening for Morrissey. And um, I, I know that Morrissey is a conflicting, we don't have to get into all of that, but I still love his music a lot. And yeah. um, that was a fantastic show seeing the two of them together. I love them both. Can you yeah. think of a song on that debut album that you worked on that made it to the final cut? Oh yeah. I mean, about half of them made it, I think. And then I had to go and, and then the, some of the mixes needed tweaking. And had I been there, I would have helped of course, but they, right. uh, New York cares is the one that sticks in my mind. Yeah, I love that. Good. Love yeah, that. me too. I love that one too. Uh, speaking of other more recent albums, Grizzly Bear, Vecatimist. I've never know exactly how to say that album name, but I love that album. In fact, the Interpol album and the Grizzly Bear albums were like in my top 10 favorites of the years that they came out. What did you yeah. do with Grizzly Bear? I love them. Mix again. I don't know how I met them. That was one of those things. Chris T, the the bass player and bass clarinetist and all around genius musician and producer was kind of producing it really, I think, but it's produced by the band, but he's very much the studio head in the band, put it okay. like that. There often is one in a band, you know? And so they, they tracked it up in the uh, Catskill mountains in uh, Allaire, uh, uh, which had closed down already, but someone knew the owner. So they basically camped out in Allaire and worked in the live room with a portable Pro Tools rig and tracked this awesome record.
And then Chris, somehow, for some reason, they wanted to get some help mixing it. And I had a few phone calls, I suppose it would have been in those days, with Chris T about it. And I just kept telling him that he didn't need me because I, I, I kept, the more I said he didn't need me, the more they were interested, basically. Right. Oh. <laughs> As often happens. So, right. because I really felt, I'd heard the roughs, I think, and I just felt they just needed to go into a big analog studio, put it up on a desk, and just yeah. rebalance it. And I felt that then Chris and the band would get the record they wanted. Okay. But the more, I suppose, we developed a relationship through these conversations, mm. which Chris obviously reported back to the band. So the more, and we spoke about three or four times about this, and the more we spoke about it, the more I could see that actually that he, they did want just an outside ear, really. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so, again, this was a, a quick event. We fired up the legendary Neve console in Allaire, uh, like the Air Montserrat console, uh, and uh, it worked, which was amazing. And then we basically split up Chris's... Uh, production from the Pro Tools rig across multiple channels mm. and I mean it sounded awesome when I arrived and I, I remember I turned down quite a lot of the effects that's mm. what I would say I did basically and that was about it that's all I did really wow <laughs> and it's an interesting tussle because it took me and Chris about three two or three days and we we're on fairly time limited here like eight day mix or something ten day maybe max it it took to accommodate each other's ways of working mm. so so, and after about two or three days, we realized the only way, duh, was to work together. <laughs> right, because, right, right. Because we were all camped out, it could happen. I might, might mix during the morning and afternoon and into the evening, and then Chris would sometimes take over and go into the night, and I'd come back in the morning, and it wouldn't sound anything like I'd left it, and then I'd change it, because I was pissed off, and then he would get pissed off. Yes. And then after two or three days of this, we thought, hang on, man, this is bollocks. We've just got to make sure we're in the studio together at the same right. time. As right. soon as we were, it was plain sailing because the awesome. song spoke so strongly. The production yes. and the song spoke so strongly that when we were just working together in the room, yeah. it was no, no question. We right. might still differ and try quickly try different things. But right. then it went from complete disparity and confusion into like this focused vision on yeah, yeah. Is the record. Yeah. I love it. I love yeah, it. It's very exciting time. It's a great album. Uh, okay, one more fairly new album. Did you work with the band Embrace on of the on the Out of Nothing album?
Yeah, I did, but only not as a producer or as an engineer. I was going through a period where I don't, I somehow, I don't know if it's for Embrace, how did I meet Youth Produce that record? Yep. And somehow I did a bunch of records with Youth as a Logic Audio programmer. Oh, I just had Youth on here a few months ago. I, I'm a, a bit of a, yeah, he's an amazing guy. I learned so much yeah. from Youth. Such a sweet guy, great heart, total freak. Total yep, music. That's genius. it. Great guy. They all use Logic Audio, and somehow they wanted, uh, and I'm a Logic Audio guru as well, so they wanted a Logic Audio program. It was done in a traditional, massive in Olympic studios. I did about four albums with him. Mm -hmm. he, uh, youth had nice budgets. He paid me very well. He was a joy to work with, um, very focused. We had a team. There was an engineer running the solid state console. There was an assistant, a runner. There was a, 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 a logic audio operator. That was me. And there was youth as the producer. No one said anything other than youth. It was classical. Really? When you, when the band are in the room, youth talking to the band, no one says anything. It was really interesting. I never could have done that job when I was young because I was so mouthy. <laughs> but, but, but everyone just got on with it and it worked. Youth worked so fast. He, what, his thing was, if we're in the studio, we're playing music, right? We're not doing anything else. We're playing music or we're having lunch. That's it. You know, <laughs> because that's, that's what he wanted to do. And that's what right. was exciting. It was amazing, right. you know, wow. uh, and so many things I learned from him. And, uh, did yeah, you do so that album at his studio in Spain? No, uh, no, he hadn't even built that then. Oh, okay. okay. No, this was Olympic. All the work I did okay. with Olympics now closed, but it was a, a legendary London studio. Yeah. Um, uh, which he loved, um, which we all loved. And uh, yeah, we, we, we did it there. Okay. I'm reading Phil Brown, his book right now. Do you know the producer, okay. Phil Brown? Yeah. And his, uh, I'm reading his book right now, and he worked at Olympic for a long time and shares yeah. a lot of stories about, about that as well. One um, of the things I brought to the Embrace record, I think, was I was rather focused on vocal tuning mm. because uh, at that time, didn't have the greatest intonation. And it was freaking me out. And uh, I didn't, I, I wasn't responsible, but I was able to flag it up in a helpful way that meant that the, that, uh, the, the finished vocal sounded really sweet. Yeah. So uh, that was really yeah. good. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I love Embrace. I've had um, their bass player on here a couple of years ago. And uh, I don't think they're really not much of anything in the States, unfortunately. And yeah. uh, I'm a big, as you can tell, British music, Brit pop connoisseur and so i any chance i get to further the cause of embrace in the states i take it because i just think they're really special yeah um and that album in particular is a really good one that is a very good album that's a kind of a comeback album as well produced by a total genius who totally got the band and knew how yep. to make it amazing you know? i agree totally agree um okay well there's i my one of my biggest concerns is that when i go through the the cherry pick list of my favorite things that someone I'm talking to has worked on that I missed the opportunity to hear a fantastic story of theirs that my questions didn't spark. Oh. And I wonder if, if you have a favorite story, I mean, you've been at this for 40 something years. When you look back on your career, what's the thing that pops to mind for you as being really special or different or bad or dramatic or whatever, <laughs> you know? Well Really, I don't know. I don't know if I have a. I, I just feel incredibly fortunate uh, to have uh, worked with such uh, great people, and to have. Been, you know, my career trajectory has been really like self-taught, coming out of the punk ethos, 
no, I wasn't really a punk. I wasn't a punk. I was more like a hippie. But there was this idea that you could do it yourself. So I didn't come up with a traditional training in other studios, uh, working as an assistant for great engineers and producers. I was just kind of thrown in the deep end at Pathway. So everything I learned, really, I learned from my the musicians and uh, a few of the other producers that I worked with, you know, Youth, Connie Plank, Daniel Miller, uh, and and others. But but so many of the musicians that I'd worked with as an engineer and a producer, it's just about listening to them and learning from them. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's when I look back on my career, that's what I give thanks for, really, the okay. awesome talent that I've been able to work with and learn so much from. Yeah. Is there anyone you didn't work with? I like to ask this question when I have producers on here. Is there anyone you didn't work with that you wish you had because whatever they were doing, you think you could have brought something special to them that would have, you know, that made some magic? Maybe. I, I don't have someone in mind now. That's a good, okay. good way of putting that question. Is there someone you many great artists that I would enjoy to work with, but they've all done such awesome work. They clearly didn't need me. Right. You know? No, so what's more interesting than the question actually is, and that's something I'll bear in mind for the future, actually, to think about that. But yeah, there's, no, I think there's nothing that pops up, you know, where I think, oh. Who's to say your favorite artist needed you? But if, if there was someone that you listened to when you yes. think there's, I could bring something to this. In fact, I, for, you know, what's interesting is most of the people I ask that question to, their answer is Kate Bush, which is really interesting because yeah. um, so many of them, I think, just wanted to be a part of Kate Bush's creative orbit back at that, back in the eighties when she was just at her peak, you know? And uh, so, yeah, I just was curious if there was an artist that when you listen to them, you think I'd like to play with this person and bring something to this table and see what happens. That process happens a lot in the day to day because of course, if I'm talking to a new artist about working together, uh, uh, it's predicated on me feeling I can bring something, you know, yeah. uh, uh, I, consider mixing a record for someone and you know i listen to the roughs and if the roughs are awesome i i i say well actually you don't need me i said this recently to a, a, a colleague mm -hmm. i said look man you don't need me to mix this record it's nearly there yeah. you, do, you know um but then very often you hear so you think actually i know i know that i can make that yeah i, I know what they're going for i know that i can help them make that record the way yeah. they want to make it yeah so that happens very much in my work now. but i don't have regrets looking back on it but it's an interesting I'll need to, I'm going to yeah, digest that. Let me know. Think, if you think yeah, of who it is, email me and I'll, I'll say who it is when we put this out. Okay. Um, okay. Cool. So one last question. We try to kind of, we cover sensitively the business side of things on here, because I think it's interesting for regular people like me to understand how it works. We have an image of what a rock, rock star is and what their lifestyle is like. And that's not always the case. And I'm curious in a situation like yours, like, um, you know, are you brought on, for hire to, uh, you know, like as a salaried employee, you don't have to get into specifics of the money you make. That's not what I'm asking. But like, do you get a point on the Depeche Mode or the Erasure albums? Or are you brought in yeah. on kind of a case-by-case -case basis? Yeah, pr uh, production, um, I, as far as I'm aware, I think there's a, most producers take a percentage of profits okay. of some kind or another, depending on, depending on how how much negotiating power you've got. It affects the size of your percentage, like normal business, you know. Sure. Um, sure. Steve Albini, I think, is famously the only per the, the only legendary producer who will not take a, a profit share from the artist. He ta he works on flat fee. Mm -hmm. uh, and all credit to his to his approach. It's, it's mm -hmm. wonderful. Uh, you know, my work's financed by 
a flat fee, uh, some money up front, which is usually offset against any percentage that I may or may, may, or may not make mm -hmm. if the project goes into profit. Mm -hmm. And it's as simple as that, you know. Okay. Uh, all the production, the mixing as well, I, I take a, a smaller a smaller percentage of, okay. the, of, of profit. And, and so much work now is done outside of record companies that my manager tries to do it in a in a simpler way on profit sharing yeah. rather than points which get very amorphous if you're okay. if you're a streaming artist on Bandcamp and you sell something to coca-cola right. there are no points anywhere so quite often we have a, a simple profit share okay. discussion with the, with the project and say well you know if if we go to profit which would be wonderful you yeah. know my my share of it is you know half a percent of your profit right. or 50 percent or whatever right. we can whatever whatever sits you know sure okay so, so does that answer does that yes it does it totally does and the reason i ask is because as we all know the music business is so different now than it yeah. was then there were large but even though john fox didn't want to take advantage of these in most cases there are large budgets to make albums and to travel to la to pick up the console and bring it back or whatever those don't exist anymore and so i'm curious when a producer like you with your long amazing pedigree in this day and age i mean i mentioned some newer albums that you've worked on but i don't i'm always curious how a producer specifically in this day and age continues to pay their bills is it through i don't know is it through like uh assigned work is it through jingles and advertising and that kind of thing like what how does people how do people remain solvent you went from the 80s where everything was in abundance to now when it's just not there anymore yeah, it's super challenging, but I'm lucky, uh, like many people from my generation, perhaps, I didn't get involved to make money. It was awesome that I could get paid doing what I loved, but it was never my dream. I could see that some people would see, look at the industry in the 70s yeah. and 80s, and that's a gold mine. I yeah. could get in there and make a fortune. That was kind of not my approach. Yeah. My approach was it would be awesome to play around with mics and tape recorders and cool bands and muck about with synthesizers. Oh, look, someone will pay me some money for it. Yeah. <laughs> right. so that's yeah. a kind of a different, so I'm not, it's Agreed. super challenging now, but I'm not disappointed, yeah. you know, I, I, and, and of course I'm super flexible. You know, I've the, one of the most recent records I've made in the last lockdown uh, is with a young woman artist where we co we've co-written a record and made it for basically no money in remotely from each other. And we've managed to get a deal with a record company with it. Nice. So that's, you know. that's great. It just and, keeps, you just keep on keeping on, right? Finding ways I, to I, do it. I'm enjoying more and more bringing musical input. I'm a huge modular synth fan and I feel I've discovered my instrument with modern electronic modular synths. So I'm doing more and more of my own music. That's you know, great. Have you heard my, have you heard my electrogenetic album? No, in fact, I wanted to ask you about your particular music. Check it out. That's okay. um, obviously everywhere streaming. It's called Electrogenetic. That's my debut solo album.
Um, not a money spinner at all, but hugely right. important to me creatively. And it's allowed me to step up and co-write with other artists where we have more of a chance perhaps of even generating a little bit of money from our, our endeavors. That's amazing. And like I said, okay, I'm really glad you mentioned this. I can see it on Spotify here. As I said, I didn't know a lot about you and wasn't finding a ton of information going into this interview. And I've always, I'm always interested in if there's new music by people. I think that's fantastic. And without falsehood, what's that? That's an uh, that's my Naus Alpha project. That's the first album with okay. Chris that I'm waking the Catskill Mountains. The second one is just coming out. It's called A Walk in the Woods. We've just released a single from the Walk in the Woods called Fibonacci Failure. That is Great. built on samples from the forest. And then, That's and the one you were talking about earlier. Yes. About. Okay. Just, there's a really cool video for that as well. So oh, please excellent. check it out. Excellent. And then I've got, okay. another, I've got another project with a hip hop producer friend of mine in Brooklyn called Spiritual Friendship. And we're just doing our fourth album now. And excellent. we've been, it's been a wonderful journey, this fourth album, uh, because I've invited three different vocalists to sing on it from uh, vocalists that I've worked with yeah. as a producer or a mixer. Yeah. And uh, they, all of them would just said yes straight away. So that's we've got great. Three, oh, that's great. featurings on there. Oh, I'm glad to hear this. I didn't know any of this was out there until now. Thank and so you. I'm so glad. Gareth, you, you uh, I love you a lot, man. Thank you so much. You've been, you're behind so much music that was the foundation of my life and that I still love today, if you can't tell. And I've just always seen your name on Music That Mattered, and I thought, I wonder what that guy's story is. So thank yeah, you yeah. so much. It was a huge honor talking with you. It was, a, it was a pleasure talking to you too. Have a good day, right? All right, there you have it, Gareth Jones, legend. And go check out the Electrogenetic album and the new Alpha. Hope I'm saying that right. The, the recording he was talking about that was all found stuff that they turned into music. It's all on Spotify. It's fascinating stuff, okay? So support these guys' solo material if you can. I want to close it out with, this is one of my favorite Erasure songs, and it's one of my, probably, I mean, it's definitely my favorite, like, deep track. It's Storm in a Teacup off of Light at the End of the World. I love this album, and I love this song. Uh, next week, I'm not 100% sure what we're going to go with. I have a few that, uh, yeah, I just don't, I just don't know. I'm not sure yet. <laughs> I hate to do that to you. Um, 
But in the meantime, you can like our page. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. Uh, huge thanks, as always, to Yan the Man, my right-hand man. And we should have another bonus episode coming out this week. It all depends on Yan and his ability and how much time he has. There's a lot going on. And I hope you all enjoyed the Steve Stevens bonus episode, the deep dive of Billy Idol's Rebel Yell that we just put out last week. Amazing. Amazing. All right? So thanks, everybody. We love you. We'll see you soon. Yeah.